Welcome to the Loose Filter Podcast. With you as always, I'm your host, Stuart Sims. This episode is a real treat, I think, and it is a, it's a repost, but it's a repost of the very first podcast episode I ever recorded for the website uh, just about exactly 10 years ago in early 2005. Somehow, the episode did not uh, make it through the transition when we did the major site redesign a few years ago, two versions of the site ago, and uh, I want to correct that oversight now and kind of dust it off and bring it to our listeners now. The episode features a conversation with composer John Mackey, who, of course, now is one of the most performed uh, living American composers in the world, uh, but then was just on the verge of the tremendous professional success he's enjoyed since then. He is in the conversation, as always, affable and funny, and also very open about his compositional origins, his creative process, his musical enthusiasms, and more. I think you will really enjoy this episode, and I am pleased to represent to you the very first podcast episode we ever recorded. Hope you enjoy this episode of the Loose Filter Podcast. John, welcome. Thank you. We're very glad to have you on our uh, inaugural podcast here. I wanted to start by just uh, asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Maybe tell me about music, how you became interested in music, and how you became interested in writing it. Uh, well, um, I come from a musical family. My parents were musicians. Uh, my grandfather owned a music store in a small town in Ohio called Mansfield, Ohio, that no one's ever heard of. And um, my uh, my mother is a flutist, and my father is a sax player and plays in a lot of jazz bands and played trumpet in the Navy band. Uh, my grandfather's a clarinetist, and um, I uh, never learned to play an instrument because what happened is I have an older sister, and she's eight years older than I am. And when she was really young, uh, she was you know born, you know they were all excited. Oh, you know, we have a kid, and we'll make a little musician. Won't that be cute? <laughs> and so uh, they got her clarinet lessons, which she hated and uh, hated the clarinet. And so then they thought, well, we'll get her like piano lessons. And so they tried to get her piano lessons and she hated that and basically ended up hating music. So <laughs> just, I think to rebel, just cause that's what she was like. So she uh, hated music and then I was born, you know, several years later and they're like, well, we're not gonna screw that up again. So we will just ignore any interest he shows in music. Cause we don't wanna, All right. we don't wanna, you know, just upset him and make right, him rebel. Right. So we won't support that. Uh, We'll just let it discover on its own, discovered himself. And so um, I would go to the piano and I would try to play the piano, but I didn't know how to play piano. And so I would cry because I would try to play it and it didn't sound like music to me. Um, or I, uh, I had a drum and I would try to play the drum and it didn't sound right because I didn't know how to play the drum. And I, they got me... Uh, and they didn't, this, they didn't take this as indicators of, hey, look, he's, you know, he's coming to the instruments. Apparently no, not, no. I didn't think, compute. Uh, we, uh, my dad tells me that... that we were at someone's house and they had a guitar and I tried to play the guitar, but you can't just start playing guitar. It sounded bad. And so again, I cried and uh, I personally composed a lot of open <laughs> string music on guitar when I was little. It's a good, yes. it's a good sound. And, uh, so yeah, nothing. And then when I was, I guess nine, my, uh, my grandfather who had the music store was also a big com computer enthusiast and uh, had a, an Apple IIe at home back in the day. This was, I'm, I'm dating myself. And um, 
we went to his house and uh, visited one Sunday and uh, he showed me how this music program that he had worked. Uh, it was called Music Construction Set. And what you would do is you would drag rhythmic values from the bottoms of the screen uh, using a joystick, because they didn't have mice then. You would use a joystick for everything. So it was like a really lame video game. You would like <laughs> use a joystick and you would put, push the fire button on the quarter note and you'd drag the quarter note up to this piano staff and you'd you know, beep, and then it would play that note. And so you would, over many hours, put in a whole song and then click the piano thing and it would play the song for you. So I thought this was great fun because I was big nerd and uh, eventually got my own computer and my own copy of the music software and started writing my own music and largely learned about music by putting other people's music into the computer. My, uh, my mother worked at Ohio State University and I would use her faculty ID to go to the music library there and I would check out standards of classical repertoire and I would take them home and I would put them into this music program and that's how I learned counterpoint and how I learned like about transposing instruments because I would take like some big like maybe like the Ravel uh, picture of an exhibition the transcription his orchestration of pictures at an exhibition and I would put it in the computer but if it's a transposing score and you put in the French horn part right. that looks like it's a certain key it's really not and you the pitches are all wrong so I had to learn how to transpose each part for each instrument um, and this and is all still entirely you teaching yourself? Yes. Just through experiments with sound and, yes. and discovering scores? Yeah, and uh, the computer I used at the time was a Commodore 64, and those computers could only play three notes at one time. That was a fine machine. It was Had a fine... myself. <laughs> it was a fine machine, but three notes is, is pretty limiting when you're putting in orchestra music. <laughs> so I got a second Commodore 64, and I put them next to each other and plugged each one into a different stereo channel, and I would start them at the same time right. so I could hear six notes at the same time. That's and then you've got Ravel there. Six. You totally. At a time. That's all you, you need. Can, yeah, yeah. We're fine. That's no problem. <laughs> you don't need color. Or anything. So now that that's an interesting uh, sort of uh, a, you know origin story coming into music that way. Do you find and this this might be a you know a longer answer perhaps than, than we have time for, but do you find that uh, conceptually you approach music and and creating sound differently maybe than some of your colleagues who had a more traditional sort of. Uh, formal education background because you 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 made sound on computers first. I don't know. I think the only main difference. I don't really see this in my friends' music. Uh, friends of mine who have had a major instrument, a principal instrument. Um, I think there's the one danger is if you're a pianist and you write an orchestra piece, you will probably write something that you can play on the piano. Right. Um, I don't have that danger because I can't play anything. So, um, I mean, you can, with some, you don't see this with really skilled composers, but with some composers, you will see pieces that you can tell they wrote it at the piano. Like right. the way the voicings are, everything's spread so far apart. It's as if a piano is just, they've taken, you know, their pinky note and they've put that in the tuba and they've taken the next finger. Right. You know, so, um, also, you, you would have players who, or composers who maybe studied, you know, cello or something, and they kind of want to give the cello section all the nice material. Like, you, I think that has happened. I don't think that's, again, with really prominent composers, you don't know what, they, what right. their instrument was. Right. Um, I just have no instrument at all, so I don't have, you know, I guess I have favorite instruments, but not because I can play them. What about your own pieces? I wonder if I could get you talking about some of uh, either current, recent projects or older pieces or whatever. Uh, you know, how would how would they apply in that? What are some of your specific pieces that maybe you love? And if you could talk to us a little bit about those pieces, maybe the character of the pieces or the impulse behind those pieces or the construction of the pieces themselves. It generally varies uh, piece to piece. Um, uh, my uh, 
my girlfriend of a couple of years is a screenwriter and she helps a great deal in uh, giving me ideas for structure of pieces because the hardest thing I get two kinds of commissions basically I either get commissions from choreographers where they ask for a specific thing often like I'll get there's a piece I wrote called Juba that's for electric string quartet and percussionist and the choreographer said he wanted something that sounded kind of like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, but not so that anybody could tell that it sounded like Rite of Spring. Like he wanted this very primal, you know, like just like relentless, like, dang, 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 like just that kind of, that was all he gave me. And he wanted percussion in it. So, uh, but that was enough to at least start to try to write like primal rhythmic music. If I get a commission that's like, oh, write us a 10-minute piece, I don't know what to do. So uh, my uh, girlfriend's very helpful in that way because she can say, like, I have this piece called Sarsaparilla. And it's basically, it tells the story of, you know, like a drunken saloon experience kind of thing is the idea. But it's basically, a, you know, like, what if, it, I've been told it sounds like uh, Animaniacs go to the saloon. It's like cartoon saloon music. find that you're often inspired by extra musical ideas? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's the easiest thing for me, uh, is to just, like the piece I just finished is called Turbine, and it basically is my way of dealing with my fear of flying. So 
I wrote a piece that the first three minutes of it is this jet engine speeding up, like gradually building up steam, and then the jet in my mind takes off. And it's really not so scary after all. I'm trying to convince myself flying is not that scary. Do you have a particular way or ways of conceptualizing sound that you feel like uh, perhaps are native to you that would, would embody part of your compositional voice? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have a perfect pitch where you can you know, hear a note and know what the note is. I can't do that. I can't play an instrument. So for me, finding pitches is hard. Um, so if I come up with a melody or something, uh, I mean, I can play piano to the point where I'm like a bad typist at a piano. Um, <laughs> right. What this means is that pitch material and harmonic material is the hardest thing for me to come up with because uh, I feel like my ear is not that complicated in advance. So what I can do, though, is come up with rhythmic material very easily and pretty intuitively, and largely that will happen by just going for walks and things, and uh, I'll go for a walk, and if I can at least start a piece or get a tiny idea when I go out for a walk, that material will loop in my head while I'm out walking, and I can work it out in my head. But rhythm is very easy for me. Uh, so most of my pieces, I think the pieces that are most successful, um, are based on rhythmic material and some kind of groove, not groove, not like necessarily, you know, like, I don't know, like a hip hop groove, but there's like, there's some kind of hopefully uh, rhythmic drive to it uh, that I think runs throughout most of my music, which is why I'm not great with say slow music. I don't write much slow music. I'm going to write a slow piece soon. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but uh, that will be item. If you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> I'll let you know. Thanks. And I think too, it's remarkable to me when you think about music, you know, throughout cultures and and really from a lot of time periods. There's so much music in my experience that is groove based, that that it, that has sort of a, a rhythmic um, underpinning. I mm -hmm. mean, anything from sambas to African drumming to uh, a lot of Indian music. It's sure. based on a, uh, a tala, and so. You've got you patterns that are very obviously rhythmic and repetitious. Um, what music? I'm always interested when I when I speak to a composer about what music by other people influences you or or moves you. Do you just enjoy? And I don't mean just other other composed music. Anything. What kinds of sounds do you enjoy as a, a consumer, as a listener? Um, okay. Well, this will be embarrassing. All right. I like uh, to watch. <laughs> On Saturday nights, I enjoyed watching Lawrence Welk on uh, PBS. Really? Yeah. Um, really just for the costumes, because, boy, <laughs> those are funny. Um, and the dancing. Oh, boy. And lots of accordion. It's. I didn't know Lawrence Welk was on consistently. This uh, he's on every Saturday night. No kidding. In fact, uh, my girlfriend I mentioned earlier, uh, she, um, when I, the piece that I wrote that became Sarsaparilla, that uh, sort of, you know, sort of cowboy parody piece, uh, when I was trying to decide what to do, I wanted to mix polka with something. So the idea, what we really came up with with Sasparilla was polka and cowboy music was a, was what we were... A natural marriage. Yes. But, a lot of German cowboys. But the first idea was it could be polka and Middle Eastern music, which I realized would end up just being uh, klezmer. But the title that she came up with, if you mixed polka and uh, klezmer, was Lawrence Welk of Arabia. Or, <laughs> or if you... Um, so, but we, that's been a great piece. I don't know if anybody would do a piece called Lawrence Welk of Arabia, but uh, so I would listen, I watched that, uh, not necessarily for inspiration. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, also, embarrassingly, when I travel and I have rented cars, I almost exclusively listen to country radio, and I don't know why that is. 
There is this is, a phase or is this a sort of abiding interest? It's been I since said, Jeff, our sound engineer, is sort of looking in disbelief over it. <laughs> it's it's it. it's been since 2001. Uh, I ha I worked for about six weeks in Dallas, Texas, one year, and uh, and there's nothing else on. So um, I was like, well, this is either happy or really sad music. It's kind of one or it's those are the extremes of country music, um, and so I kind of enjoyed that a little bit and. Uh, I like you know the female singer songwriters like uh, there's someone named uh, Cheryl Wheeler who I think is great. Uh, Susan Werner is really good. Um, uh, I went through a big phase of liking the uh, what I like to refer to as the lesbian singer songwriters. There are plenty of those that I find yes uh, perfectly listenable. Um, if I'm trying to get ideas for music, I will listen to you know styles of things. Like I listened to many CDs of cowboy songs before I wrote. Uh, sarsaparilla. Um, the current piece, the, the piece I just finished called Turbine, um, I listened for that to a bit of uh, John Adams, really just for orchestration because I think no one orchestrates like John Adams. Oh, I agree. Um, and there Any are, pieces of his in particular? Uh, We're a one, big fan of John Adams here at the Loose Filter Project. I'm, I'm gonna mispronounce it. Uh, it's that earbox piece. Um, Oh, Slonimsky's earbox. Yes. That, yeah. Oh, that's a brilliant piece. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't. You know, my favorite part in that piece is when the horns have that chromatic line uh -huh. and the woodwinds and synthesizer are doing that shimmery thing. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, a yeah. Third of the way. Yeah. some amazing stuff in that thing and what I really wanted this it's just it's a silly I guess su such a simple thing but I wanted something I, I heard the piece I, I heard it live a long time ago and then I got the recording listening to listening to it recently and he does this thing where there's just crazy bright sparkly shimmery colors and like rips and all I, I have no idea what's going on in the orchestration because I have never seen the score um, and it's all high and twinkly, and then the low brass just goes back, and it's done. I'm like, oh, I'll end the piece like that. <laughs> so. So I did exactly that. I have low or really, really high winds and brass going, lee, 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 and then just bang. And so that sounds nothing like John Adams, except I, I thought, oh, I'll have a low note in the end. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of conceptual <laughs> transfer, not a literal exactly, transfer. Yeah, but uh, there are scoring things I would just, I wish, I think there is no, uh, you know, living orchestrator better oh, than I John totally, Adams. I just think of the first uh, five minutes of naive and sentimental music. Mm -hmm. I mean, my word. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and to write a tonal melody that never cadences is... Oh, it, geez, it, yeah. How do you do that? And how he can write, I found that he can write 20 minutes of music with no tune, and I don't get bored. Right. And it's not just, it's just, it's always changing. It's really not just like repetitive, but I'm like, how can this be 20 minutes with no melody, or no melody that I think is good? I don't really think he's such a good melodic writer, but I don't care. I don't miss it. <laughs> I just never feel like I need a tune that I can hum or anything. Yeah. He just gives me so much more. Well, I, I would venture that, uh, that Beethoven also was not mm. so so good at writing melodies, I, yeah. but uh, I don't think it ever handicapped no, his writing He did fine. He yeah. did totally I fine. Think, I think his musical stick. I, think, <laughs> I have a pretty yes. good feeling about him. 
Uh, let's, uh, what, tell me about uh, um, some of your favorite performance experiences. Favorite. you have any that stick out, may either, uh, you know, uh, your music or, or anyone else's music or... Um, oh, your, wow. Your favorite experiences uh, uh, at concerts. Um, the, uh, the, the composer I studied with at, uh, at Juilliard, his name is John Corleano, and I had just, I'd uh, been determined to study with him uh, for a couple of years before I actually got into study with him. Um, I was a student, an undergrad in Cleveland, and uh, at the Cleveland Institute of Music, and I ushered every week for the Cleveland Orchestra concerts. So I heard four years of Cleveland Orchestra concerts every week, which is a great way to hear yeah, no kidding. really amazing music. A crash know. course in repertoire. Yeah, it My really goodness. was. And so I, yeah. you know, uh, unrelated, I don't really feel like I need to hear the nine Beethoven symphonies again for a while because I heard Cleveland do them under Doc Gnani, and I feel like that was fine for a while. I don't, right. I don't need to like run out and hear Beethoven. They're fine. They're great. But speaking of Adams, that's something I heard him say one time. Sorry, this is a, a digression, mm -hmm. but he wishes that in a, in a sort of fantasy world that we could take the nine Beethoven symphonies and put them away for ten years, and yeah. that no one could hear them. Uh huh. Just sort of give a moratorium on that music, so that we could, when we heard it again, its specialness would be more evident. That's a great us, idea. You know? It's like what Disney used to do with movies. You know, like Fantasia would be out Remove every them seven from years circulation. or something. Yeah, like, yeah do yeah. that again. Exactly. Um, but uh, Corleano came uh, to Cleveland because the Cleveland an orchestra was doing his clarinet concerto, which I think is his best piece. It's my favorite piece of his. And uh, I went to all the rehearsals and uh, sat in the center orchestra for the concert. And it's just this amazing piece that has all this surround brass and everything. And uh, it was just unbelievable. And I went back the next night and heard it again. And it was, I still have the ticket stub that I keep in my, in my uh, not the wallet I have with me, but my other wallet <laughs> has, so don't ask to see it, but I actually, I still have the ticket stub from that concert. If you could pick it up and wrinkle it. So yes, a, yeah. yeah, there was. That yes, was it. That's it. That's um, it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Is that looking I will up? confirm. <laughs> um, and uh, of my own music, um, I've been very fortunate in the past couple of years to get some really fantastic performances. Um, and there have been some that, you know, where the audience was just, uh, I felt like every, they were just the energy in the hall was really amazing and the and the players were really into it. And um, I've, been, I've been fortunate. I don't know that... There's one that I would pick. I mean, there was one in August uh, in Santa Cruz, the Cabrillo Contemporary Music Festival, and uh, Marin Alsop did this piece of mine called Redline Tango, and uh, it was really, really exciting um, because I was kind of scared of the whole experience because uh, she's well, that's a, a that's a big time festival. Yeah, and it's a big, big time, time, and I you know conductor and and so you're on. speaking of Adams. Adams was the whole second half of the concert, and you know this was an audience that was there just to hear new music, so they knew what they were getting and they knew how to listen to this stuff, and that made it kind of scary too. And um, but it was it was really uh, very exciting, and the audience was very nice, and the orchestra. The best part about it to me was the orchestra response because they were they just couldn't have been kinder. And you know you think orchestra players don't really necessarily want to play new music. They're like, you know, these are, there's the new piece on the program. But at that festival, I don't believe in general the people get paid to play on it. I don't it. think they do. I, I think that's purely a labor of love. Yeah, so these are people who just want to play new music for that conductor. And so, you know, they don't dread the new music. And if they get to play something that they think is fun, they tell you. It's not like I've had performances where the orchestra was fairly cold during rehearsals, then they would play the piece, see the audience response, and then they would tell me that they liked right. the piece. But they would never say anything <laughs> right. until the audience told them it was okay to like it. So it's been an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it, yeah. Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. Conductors can interest audiences in more new music. 
Oh, I think probably doing it. Just playing <laughs> it just, and uh, well, um, I mean, I've seen I've seen things uh, that work. Um, some one thing is, uh, I mean, programming makes a huge difference. I think to put pieces. Uh, not what I don't like is concerts of nothing but new music. I feel like that just kind of ghettoizes the whole thing, and uh, yeah, you're not I expanding concur, yeah. your audience in any way by doing that. Um, I think if the composer is able to be there, I think having the audience see the composer speak briefly before a piece, I think, is very important. Uh, whenever I introduce a piece, I always tell the audience how long the piece is going to be because I think if the program note doesn't say it, even if it does, I think it's very important for an audience to know before not even necessarily a new piece just a performance how long is that piece going to be like i will listen to a piece differently knowing it's going to be 70 minutes long than seven so um and i can take a lot more for seven minutes you know and right the thinking is if a piece is 10 minutes i'll tell them it's only 10 minutes you know even if you hate it's only 10 minutes <laughs> it's only 10 minutes and then either. you can hear the you know rachmaninoff concerto or whatever you came here for so the warm hug of familiar yes, music exactly, that yeah. you, you sought out uh, are there any uh, pieces in particular, like if you had a if you had a concert or a season to program yourself? Oh. Uh, are there any pieces you would be sure to include, either for band or orchestra? Just, you know, uh, are there a, a handful of pieces that you think are really pieces that that should be played as often as possible? You know, there's an orchestra piece that nobody knows that I love and really want to get a copy of the score, and I can't find it anywhere. It's by William Walton, of all people, who, you know, is just like the court composer of Britain for the 50s and um, wrote this piece called Partita for Orchestra that he wrote for the Cleveland Orchestra in the 50s under Zell. It's great. It's so cool and uh, has it great, great rhythms in it, lots of cool meter changes that all make sense. It's not like, oh, we're just going to change meter. Right. It, like, needs to be... Like, it's the kind of thing you listen to and... I'm not really aware that it's changing meter every other bar because it needs to. Um, and that to me is like rhythmically the best thing that can happen. Right, um, right. And it just, it's orchestrated so, so well. And I think all anybody knows of Walton, if they know anything, they know like Belshazzar's Feast, which is really cool too, I think. Right. Um, or Facade, which yeah, gets a lot of play. Yeah. And then there's, you know, like what, Spitfire, Prelude, and Fugue. And there are like some of the coronation marches and things. But everyone thinks, you know, it's the wrote marches. But the Partita for Orchestra is this brilliant piece that's, you know, 15 minutes long. Nobody does it anymore. I think it's great. Um, I, uh, I heard a band piece recently by a guy who I forgetting his name now, but he used to be director of bands at Ohio State for like 30 years and uh, wrote this symphony that was, you know, like this 30-minute symphony for band, like at the same time that Hindemith was doing his. So it's like from the 50s. It was so inventive. And I think part of it because there was not really a thinking of this is what band sounds like. This doubles that. And, you know, here's where the brass comes in. It was like really inventive and it was, it had a bunch of 12-tone stuff in it. And, but 12-tone that you know, didn't sound like 12 tone. 12 tone, they were like, is that actually 12 tone? Like, you wouldn't know it unless you read in the note that, in fact, it was serialized. Um, I think stuff like that's really cool. And, you know, it's just like a lost piece that he wrote in the 50s and was done a ton in the 60s, and now it's just gone. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just like, I think some of the things that are standards really should be standards. You know, like, I think Daphnis and Chloe should be a standard. I think that's, <laughs> right. if you want to do that, that's fine. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, pretty you know pretty twinkly french orchestration i have no problem with i think that's that's good stuff and you know i like adams i like i love reich i don't think reich is i don't think the orchestra stuff is so strong but i think the small well, he would probably agree with yeah. you too i think he's sort of those large ensemble pieces he wrote 
with strong requests from yes. friends. Yeah, you know, exactly. Who really wanted him to do that? Yeah, um, but the smaller uh, scoring, just great. Yeah, his uh, new CD of your "You Are" the variations he wrote for the L.A. Uh, oh. Masterworks Chorale, really terrific. Oh, I haven't. I don't even really know about nice. that one. Yeah, really nice. Came out just a month or so ago, maybe. Oh. "You Are" variations okay. is the name of the piece. Great. Uh, for those of you who are listening who haven't heard it. A strong endorsement for me, certainly. Now, you write for, for orchestras and bands and assorted chamber ensembles, and you incorporate sort of non-traditional instruments into your concert music. But uh, thinking about working sort of in the, the large ensemble worlds of orchestra and bands, what are some differences you find working in each medium that are maybe you know inherent in the medium, the way you would approach an orchestra differently from a band, but also the way they work professionally I mean, that you how find? How much time do you have? For that question, I, uh, <laughs> it's, I don't, it is the internet, so you know we yeah. could talk forever, but <laughs> I don't think people will listen forever. The differences so. are enormous, just enormous. I mean, I'll tell the little uh, little analogy that I that I came up with, which is if you're a composer and you study at like some big conservatory or even a little conservatory, you study composition for your major, you think you're supposed to write orchestra music, like that's basically it. So let's say you're a composer and you. Everyone thinks you should marry this girl named Orchestra. So you basically do. And you marry this girl, her name's Orchestra, and she treats you like crap. She totally, like, she she doesn't, she's really mean to you all the time. And, like, you know, she, you, you write a piece, and you're like, hey, honey, look at my new piece. And she's like, I don't really have time to look at that right now. And you're like, but I'm married to you, Orchestra. Don't you want to see my piece? And she totally doesn't want to see your piece. And she knows everybody, though. So, like, all your friends are like, oh, wow, she's so cool. She knows everybody. But she only wants to talk about, like, Beethoven. Like, she doesn't want to talk about any of your friends. So, like, then you go to this cocktail party one day, and there's this kind of fat girl named Band. And she's kind of fat, but she's, like, and she's she's loud. Like, she's kind of, like, a little abrasive, but she's really funny. And she's like, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm a composer. And she's like, oh, that is hot. And you're like, really? And you're so excited that somebody would think that what you do is cool. And so you like show her your piece. And she's like, oh, my God, this is so great. I love your music. What else do you have? And you're like, really? You actually want to know what I do? This is insane. And so, you know, maybe composer strays a little bit to the big, loud band girl. But, I mean, there's something hot about her. There's like... She's, you know, she's got a whole thing going on. It's just kind of different, but it's just so nice to be appreciated by her, even though she's not what your, all your friends thought you should be doing necessarily. You're much happier with band. Do you find that uh, in in writing band works that creatively you are limited in any way, or is it just simply a different medium? It's a different medium. Uh, the, I mean, I've been so absorbed in a piece that I just finished. For the past like two months I've been working on this thing and I just finished it yesterday and so it's very fresh to me what I find that's hard is that nothing sustains like I want like this is my problem I that's what I find and, you know and, and, and I conduct both orchestras and bands and I find that that's something I struggle to create because with a string instrument when you stop playing it the string keeps vibrating mm-hmm. and that does a lot to add sort of body to the texture of the sound that when you stop playing a wind instrument, there's no more sound. I mean, yeah. obviously the vibration stops. Yeah, and I mean, like I, if I want some big chord to last for bars and bars and bars, uh, you know, brass players run out of breath. And even if you've got two on a part and they try to stagger breathe or something, it's not the same as having, you know, strings like hold something or strings high tremolo or whatever, like nothing, 
in the band that I found, I mean, percussion, but I already in this piece was using eight percussionists and I didn't have enough. Like I want high shimmery, like, like high tremolo things, but nothing can do that in the band except all the mallets I'm already using. You know, like, right, right. Um, so that's been my thing. And also just like strings can really get a sharp attack that winds don't get the same attack for me. Like right. I want really articulate, like, like not tongued, but like I want like just the sound of the bow scratching down on a string that is completely different in strings than in any wind instrument. Um, and so I miss that. Are there things that work the other way, things you've discovered in the band that you can do that perhaps you are not able to do when you're writing for the ensemble of an orchestra? I can write harder music for band. I mean, the piece that I just finished. Really? Is, Why do you suppose that is? Well, there's so much more rehearsal time and uh, like there's the fact that, you know, the groups will spend a couple of weeks on a piece instead of, you know, 45 minutes. Like I had a piece uh, with the Minnesota performance with the Minnesota Orchestra this summer, and they rehearsed this piece of mine, uh, Red Line Tango, which is really hard. They rehearsed for 45 minutes, and now they played the hell out of it. It has never gotten a better performance anywhere, but it's the Minnesota Orchestra. I mean, like, but you give the same piece to a more regional orchestra and give them 45 minutes on it, and it would not sound good. But you know, there's a band version of the same piece, and. Uh, the groups will spend four weeks on it and sound just about as good. You know, like I kind of miss the strings in the middle part of the piece, but um, aside from that, you know, I'm not complaining by the performance. Like, I've been stunned by the performances I've gotten of a piece that I thought was almost too hard as an orchestra piece. I thought college groups could never do this thing, and I was wrong. But what that ended up doing is it made me make my most recent piece even harder just because I'm like, well, I can write anything apparently. So I'm just going to see if they really mean that. All the directors, all the band conductors keep saying, you know, you can write anything for band. Okay, well, let's see. <laughs> so here's, we'll see what I It is. I mean, and, and in, the, in, the, in the professional orchestra world, they, they're, you finally see sort of surfacing in the public dialogue that, that it's, it is sort of percolating up this virtuosity on wind instruments that is being built in by the demands of ensembles of wind to percussion instruments that uh, make them do things that you wouldn't do if you were playing the Mozart flute and harp concerto. Sure, and what also, I mean, yeah, that's true, the wind and brass sections of these orchestras are just unbelievable. One nice thing I found is, I used to be kind of embarrassed if I would have an orchestra performance. I wouldn't mention that there's a band version of the piece. Now I do to the players in the orchestra, if they like, you know, the piece, I tell them there's, I tell them there's a version for that as well, and they're excited, and they go back and they tell their you know college band director, oh, there's this cool piece, you should do this, the band version of it. So. One final question, <laughs> yes. if I may. Uh, you're here uh, to work directly with students at CSU Stanislaus, uh, both in rehearsal and in the classroom, and of course to interact with the audience at the, the concert tomorrow night. Uh, are you able to do that often, and, uh, and do you enjoy it? Oh, oh, yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, maybe it comes back to the fact that I wanted to be an actor in, you know, when I was in high school, I'm like, oh, I'll be an actor. I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in front of a large audience. Uh, I, at least I am once I'm up there. Right before I go up, I freak out. I'm totally just terrified of being stupid. But I think maybe that comes through, and then the audience just gives me a break because they feel sorry for me. But it's, I, I, I love being able to speak to an audience about a piece uh, they're going to hear. And... Um, so that's always a treat, um, and I do. I have been fortunate to to visit a lot of colleges for performances in the past couple of years, uh, really the past year and a half or so. And um, we'll go to several more 
I was at Michigan and Ohio State this fall, and I'm here, and we'll be at uh, University of Miami and uh, a couple other schools in the spring. And um, it's really fun. Like I, when I was at University of Michigan speaking, I spoke to the composition students, and that's a major composition school. Uh, some great, great student composers have come out of there. You know, like when I was a student at Juilliard and I would enter a competition and I would lose it, some Michigan kid would always beat me. <laughs> that was pretty much how it would go. And so I was really scared of like, why am I here? I'm not qualified to talk to these kids. They were so nice. And I just, it was like the most fun forum I've ever done. Like to get to talk to other young composers about you know what I do and hear what they do and um, just talk about like you know, the experience. And I talked to them about you know, being young and making a living, which is something that when they're in school, they don't really think about. And I think it's important to think about it and also show that it is possible. Um, it's like when I was in school, we didn't talk about what you do when you graduate. As a result, the summer after I graduated right, was pretty right. much the most depressing summer of my life as I waited for people to call me and offer me work and no one called. Like, right, right. So, you know, the composer's a, job fair didn't happen yeah, like it yeah, did in the other yeah, colleges. Yeah, I didn't get that. So yeah. um, I think it's important for uh, just to be not that long out of school, although it's been a while now, um, and be able to talk about you know what I did right after school. Like when I was a student and John Adams came and spoke, you know, and you'd say, how do you get a performance? And the answer is basically, I'm John Adams. So I mean, <laughs> what do I write down? Become John Adams, you know, like then I too can have performances. Like I can offer, I think, more practical information about how to hopefully get work. And, uh, and it's just fun. Like it's fun to be around people who are young and not jaded yet, and you know, think it's fun to play stuff. Do you find that uh, working with college age players that they respond to your music well? I, I have so far, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've had um, I, stylistic things I've had come out better from younger players for sure than professional players. You know, like uh, pieces that I have that are even more uh, consciously pop based really come off better with younger players because they know the music but you know you get an orchestra of you know 65 year olds they don't necessarily know what tool sounds like and so they don't really know where to put the accent on what part of the beat you know like stuff like that and you're mentioning in redline tango in particular the rock band tool I'm, i remember hearing you say was an influence yeah um, uh, on that piece somewhat and that tool was really an influence in a piece called juba that's the one that I was, I was like, I'm going to write Juba, or I'm going to write you know, Tool for a chamber ensemble, essentially, where I'm going to have different players and different meters, and I'm going to you know, shift things like that all the time, which is harder to do in a big ensemble piece, but you can do in a string quartet with percussion. Um, but that's, that's something, if I gave that to you know, some old, like the Cleveland Quartet, which is an amazing quartet, probably would not give the same kind of really tight, nasty, you know, like the groove would just not feel the same dirty way that it needs to feel to come off not sounding square. So, and that's something that I get from young players that I, I think it's great. And plus, you know, like I thought young that just meant, oh, they don't know how to play yet. But that's not true at all because they, they, right. they do and they actually still want to play. <laughs> and are willing to work at things yeah, that are absolutely. very hard, yeah. uh, individual parts. It almost seems hard. like a badge of honor. Like I, what I have found with a few, I think in some instances, with this piece of mine, Redline Tango, that's very, very difficult, and I thought nobody would do it. Um, I think there are now more and more schools doing it that just feel like they should be able to do it. We want to try to do it and uh, to show that we can do it too. So that's fine, I, as long as I'm not there. <laughs> some <laughs> right, some right. of those performances I don't really need to hear, but you know, 
that's that's kind of cool that there's a piece that they think this is really hard. We should try it. Right, right. Well, we'd like to thank you for uh, thank you. for sitting down and talking to us and giving us our our, our inaugural podcast in this sort of loose filter experiment.